This is Dialogue on Teaching. I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, Director of the Wabash Center, and of course, Paul Myrie is in the engineer's booth. It is my pleasure to have as our guest today, uh, Dean Jill Cranshaw. Uh, Dean Cranshaw is Vice Dean for Faculty Development and Academic Initiative, as well as the Blackburn Professor of Worship and Liturgical Theology at Wake Forest University School of Divinity in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Welcome to the show, Jill. So glad to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. In this moment of rebellion, in this moment of protest, in this moment when people have said enough is enough about racial discrimination, about racial injustice, about racial violence, um, we particularly think that theological education has a role to play in this huge conversation and this needed conversation. Um, let, let us talk, you and I talk about um, what resources do you use for this moment of teaching? How are you preparing yourself for your classes? And just, just help us, ha as, as theologians, how do we find ourselves in this moment? That's a wonderful question, and I'm, again, very honored to, to be involved in the dialogue. For me, I have sort of a, a, an overarching way of thinking about this work, and part of it is based on a wonderful book that I read back in the spring, by some of my sagacious friends from the Forum for Theological Education. Uh, the name of the book is Another Way, Living and Leading Change on Purpose, and the authors are Dory Baker, Stephen Lewis, and Matthew Williams. And one of the things they're talking about in this book is that in this particular era, in these times, we need to imagine another way or multiple other ways for leadership formation to happen. <clears throat> and I've sort of translated this into my work as a, a theological educator. I think professors are also leaders, and I think um, I'm trying to discern another way. And when I read this book, I thought a lot about the Magi uh, and the story of the Magi in Scripture. Now, I know that we're not um, nearing Advent or Christmas or Epiphany, but I think the the wisdom that we find there is still pretty important. The Magi uh, were wise people in their time. They were people of some intellect and training and knowledge, and they went to seek Jesus, the baby Jesus, and when they got there and encountered him, um, they had an epiphany, a revelation, and because of that, they were able to uh, hear and see a voice in a dream, um, that told them to go home by another way. Not to go home by way of Herod, not to go home by way of the political forces, but to go a different way. And that's what they did. And I think part of the discerning work we need to do in theological education is to discern another way, to find a different wisdom to guide us so that we don't go by the old ways or go by way of the political forces that so often um, influence and shape what we think and do. And so I've, I've called this discerning work wisdom work. And I believe that this work is also a form of liturgy. Of course I would, I'm a liturgical theologian and scholar. But I'm, I'm serious about uh, liturgical work being wisdom work. Uh, the word liturgy comes from liturgia, which means the work of the people. And I think the work we do as theological educators is communal work. It's work that we share inside theological education and inside uh, theological educating institutions, but it's also work that we share in the world as we perform the gospel in our everyday lives. And that's important, I think, for us to think about as we're trying to discern another way. I think your connection with this moment now to remind us that we are still a part of the Christian story, as well as link us to the story of the Magi or the magicians the spiritualists in Jesus's time, those who had spiritual know-how, those who were known to be able to hear voices inside of themselves. I mean, you made the connection to um, hearing the voice inside of yourself as discernment. Well, that's what magicians do, shaman do, spiritualists do, mm -hmm. people who are into deep prayer and meditation who understand that there's more than one reality simultaneously. So to connect us to that wisdom tradition both ancient as well as current, I think is right on target for the 
um, recognizing the depth of the problem right now in this upheaval and rebellion, as well as the kind of resources, both in the book that you mentioned, as well as the resources we have as Christian people and our own spiritual traditions. Yeah, I kind of, um, you know, my other favorite uh, wisdom character is uh, woman wisdom in Proverbs, and I, she calls out in the streets. She sits at the city gates. She's a public figure, but then she also has a house. And I just, I think we are people who, um, who've maybe been in the house too long, <laughs> or we've just stood in the doorway, and now we need to get out in, in the streets. I mean, if we want to do our part to eradicate racism and in poverty and provide adequate housing and health care for, for everybody, then we need this other way and we need to do our part both inside and outside. So that's very helpful. So often in crisis, particularly social crisis or societal crisis, um, our impetus is to leave the Christian story and act like we're not affected by the Christian story or that we can put the Christian story down when right. we, things are not nice. Right. So the fact that you're bringing the Magi story forward, <clears throat> excuse me, bringing the Magi stories forward in this moment and that the Magi were known to be magicians, known to be people who, who could hear things other people could not hear. Mm. Right. P people who, as you say, could hear the voice and then obey the voice. But you have mm. to hear the discernment inside of you and around you that um, sometimes bureaucratic leadership will look for the trends and look at the facts <laughs> and not listen for the voices. So That's you're so calling true. us to, to a different accountability. One of staying inside the Christian story during the protests in this time of rebellion and this movement of justice. And then two, using our spiritual tools as much or more than we use our cognitive tools. That has uh, been important to me to try to understand how we create a, um, balance and dialogue within ourselves between um, spirit and intellect uh, and also individualism and uh, what we do collaboratively and cooperatively. And I don't think we've always struck a very good balance of that across the history of theological education. And of course that history has been um, undergirded by a lot of white scholars um, and authors and so I think it's really important for us to get beyond that. One of the things that um, Stephen, Matthew and Dory say in their book is that um, leadership formation practices have been too individualistic and too short-sighted um, and that that means we have not been as willing to seek broader alternatives or try something new that we think would create a new paradigm or that would shake the ground beneath us. And I think um, it's time for us not to do that short-sighted and individualistic thing. This needs to be a, a long-term change and something that we don't give up on until we've accomplished it. Um, right, so, so we're not looking for tactics. We're looking for strategies that will right. bring long-term and sustained it's change right. in our institutions. But, but that's hard, Jill, that's hard. I agree. How, do you, how do you stay in that fight? Like, how, it, because Corona is the COVID is still going on, the Corona pandemic. We're tired from the Corona pandemic. We're already in um, um, triage mode, trying to think of our own classes for the fall. And now, laid on top of that, is now I'm supposed to think about justice in classes where I hadn't thought about justice before. Well, I think that is what some people are are certainly having to do. Um, the long-term solution, of course, is that, and what I hope some have done prior to now, is to do that thinking already, uh, that we, we want to decenter white voices from the conversation so that we're creating a broader dialogue. And right now, that means centering black voices, centering black authors, centering black theologians, not just in courses that are about black theologies or um, womanist theologies or those kinds of things, but in all of our courses. And that's one of the things that um, has been a powerful transformation in my own teaching over the 20 years that I've been at Wake Forest, is to try to foreground those voices um, it's difficult to do because as a white professor, 
I am the foregrounded voice um, as the professor in the classroom, but I want to try to create a dialogue. And I think the way I have tried to do that is by choosing uh, readings, authors that create that diversity that's across a lot of different kinds of diversity, but also to recognize that my students bring wisdom and experience and their voices need to be heard not only by me but by e by each other right. um, how do we do that if we've never done it before i think i think we have to be willing to jump in and and be honest about you know i don't know how to do this but i'm i'm going to do the best that i can and we're going to have to make some mistakes and learn from them um, in this crisis moment that's not easy to do and it can lead to to tensions, I think, within ourselves and, and sometimes in the classroom itself. I think what you say is very important. We're not um, in the conversation about leadership and lasting change. We're not telling white people to stop being the authorities in their own classrooms, right? We're not saying bring shame in your classroom as a teacher. And some people are hearing it that way. We're oh. saying out of good scholarship, out of <laughs> good leadership building, bring a diversity of voices to your students because your voice is will always remain the authoritative voice in your classroom as it should so in this case the diversity we're asking people to bring as you say is to foreground then other races and other peoples right. so there's a variety in the mix to, from from my perspective that's that's good teaching that's good scholarship just from jump regardless of the racial politics which yes, of course I it's in there but that's what good teaching does. Yes. And I think for, if, I think what's necessary to do that um, is first of all, to, to be aware of what your, what the dynamics of power are in the classroom. So what you're saying is you're, you're still the professor. Um, as, a, as a white person, I'm still the professor. So I'm gonna grade these students. I'm, I'm the person who is, uh, responsible for holding the classroom, holding the conversation. And uh, I have to be aware of that power that I have and learn to use that power in a way that um, brings change and invites transformation and that invites other voices. I think that's been a central value for me. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to be a professor or to be a minister before that was because I wanted other people to be able to find discover and release their voices because they have a message to proclaim. And part of the teaching effort for me is helping people to discover what that voice is, to get clear about it, and then to proclaim it in a way that's effective. Um, have you had experience of resistance from your colleagues, resistance from your students to say, why we don't need anything other than whiteness, right? Why are you doing this? Um, well, at Wake Forest, we have uh, sort of I would say our faculty stands together in our effort to, um, I mean, we, we really stick to our mission. Our mission says we are equipping students to be agents of justice, uh, reconciliation, and compassion. And what that has uh, called us to do and, and urged us to do is to stand together to to do this work. Not everybody in, who's a faculty member at Wake does it the same way that I do but they don't teach the same um, specializations that I teach. But I do think we are together in that effort. And that leads to some very fruitful, I think, conversations. Mm -hmm. um, in the classroom itself, of course, there have been tensions and resistances over the years. I expect there'll be tensions and resistances as we move into the summer and fall with all that's happening in our world. Um, you know, and for those of us who are a little bit conflict averse, that can be scary. You know, we like people to get along and all of that kind of thing. And I think that that's one of the things that I should know about myself and give that up, release that to some higher power so that I can be present in the classroom in a way that helps hold that tension. So, so it's a conflict averse is uh, fascinating for people in this moment of protest. It yeah, is. I, You're I've absolutely never right. About it with yeah. that kind of clarity, right? Yeah. Conflict averse people. Um, but we also know that um, it, protest is what brings lasting change, right? Mm -hmm. when, when people say, I can't live this way anymore, right? That's so these, right. these protests are not um, menial things or minor things, right? They're not no. people just acting out because no. they're bored. They are proclamations that 
this is a death dealing situation and right. there are certain parts of the population that are dying. Um, I'm actually hoping there will be an uptick of seminary admissions in this moment. Yeah. People coming to theological education to explore the questions that these protests are churning in our yes. society. What competencies would we want to teach our students if this protest sends them into our classrooms? Well, I hope that um, we would model for them in the classroom a way to create dialogue. And that um, by that, they could learn some things for themselves about how they enter into dialogue with each other. I also think students learn a lot an enormous amount from each other about how to build relationships across differences. At least that's true at our school. Um, that the differences are not, and the, and it's not just that we're trying to talk about race in these conversations, though that's the thing that is the most urgent today, and may be still that the most urgent in the days ahead, and has been the most urgent for. Um, anytime a person's life is at stake, that's the urgent issue. But the diversity and diversities that we carry are multiple, um, whether they're political diversities, economic diversities, educational background. I mean, there's just so many. And learning to be uh, hospitable and generous in our ways of being in conversation with each other is critical, I think, to learning. And so I would want students to learn how to be hospitable, generous, um, honest and authentic about who they are and where they stand, and then to try to, to enter into dialogue that helps them to move the, all of us to a new place. I, that's happened to me in the classroom a lot over the years, and especially in more recent years as, as um, I've grown and our, our world is changing, is I learn a lot from our students about how to do this work. I mean, one of our um, one of the one of the experiences, and this uh, I'm just uh, underscoring what you're saying, is that we teach adults, right? And adults mm -hmm. don't come, you know, tabula rasa into our. They they, they come as fully formed human beings, right? And they bring their own wisdoms, right? They bring their own sensibilities. They bring their own experiences into the classroom, and to put those sensibilities and experiences in conversation. Oftentimes I do in my own classrooms feel like the learner in the classroom because of those dynamics. But that requires a faculty person to let people talk, to let people, yes. to let people dialogue. Right. Yeah. That in and of itself is scary for so many of our colleagues. I agree, it is. It's been scary for me too. Um, because of, you know, I mean, there are some expectations placed on us as we get, as we earn PhDs that we're supposed to have all the answers. I don't know if that's a real expectation that's put on us, but there's something that's assumed in that. And we want to make sure that people know that we, um, we do know what we're talking about and that we do have that knowledge. So I've, I've been trying to think about um, what are some things that I need to do about myself that equip me to uh, open the way for this dialogue. And I think I have to have clarity about my own um, values and identity as a teacher. I have to be honest about the limitations. And that means if I am honest about, then I have to do deep listening, both to myself, but also to others who have experience and knowledge that I don't have, but that we need. And then I think the other thing is I have to be really intentional about doing my race work. Um, as a white person, it's my responsibility to learn and grow in knowing about white racism, white supremacy, and my own participation in that as a person who has white privilege. And I can't, the, day, the, the thing I worry the most about is that I'll try to do that work on top of my students. Ooh, yes, yes. And I can't place that burden on Ooh. them. Even if I am learning from them, it can't be that that's the purpose, that's the reason that they are there. They are there to learn. And I have a responsibility um, for my own identity as a teacher who teaches from a place of white privilege. I just have to be honest about that. Um, I'm also a woman, a woman who teaches and I'm a part of the LGBTQ community. So I have, I have to be honest about that and be aware of what that means for me as a teacher. Um, and in my case, I think it's meant seeking out workshops and seminars and other things that, that help me to grow and learn. Mm -hmm. And there 
often those are offered at the university or other places. Um, I think uh, Association for Theological Schools, Wabash, other places have great resources for helping me to claim some of those identities and values in a way that's healthy for myself and in the classroom. And then the fourth thing I would say for myself is, is to be authentic and consistent as a teacher. Uh, what I believe is what I believe. And that might be in a, that's a, you know, that believing for me is a process. I'm, I'm learning and growing, but what I believe is what I believe. And I need to be able to state where I stand. And when I do that, I can make space for other voices as well without feeling like they have to stand where I stand or I have to necessarily believe what they believe, but we can all be in this together and, and those voices are valuable. I think we underestimate the um, expectation and yearning that our students bring into our classrooms and our seminaries for community. Yes. For faith community. So I do think they come for information. I do think they come for intellectual experience. I also think they come for community to be changed as much as to find um, right. to find people to reinforce what they think. So when I, uh, early on in my teaching career, I had a colleague who said, because I, I was saying, it doesn't matter to me what my students believe. And my colleague very rightfully corrected me and said, a student cannot say in my classroom that you cannot be ordained because you're a woman. Hmm. And it halted me, right, because I thought I was saying the better statement to say kind of free to be you and me. Right. So her statement to me was very challenging to say, how do we both know who we are and what we believe in our classroom? And, and how do we temper whether we require our students to not speak their beliefs if they are counter to our own beliefs? I think that's a difficult, place to stand. I mean, I think it's a place we stand all the time. I think it's a difficult place to stand. I think it is too. And I, I think um, you're right. It's, it, it is kind of threading the needle of, you know, we hold certain convictions as a school. We have a mission statement. We have guiding principles. We have a way that we talk about hospitality and language. Um, and so I think because we've claimed that as a community, it gives us a, a broader place even to stand. I can say what I believe about that, and I can say to students, I am urging you, and sometimes I think professors even say, we require you to practice this, to practice this hospitality. Um, if you can leave this classroom and decide that you're not gonna use these, um, embody these values in, in this way, but here we want you to try them out. We want you to practice them. Um, and part of the reason for that is that it's important for them to do that as part of their learning. And also I think it's important for us to create a hospitable classroom where people uh, feel like they can be who they are. And when what I believe is in direct, um, has direct implications for who you are. I think it's very, I think this moment has brought us to reckoning with the um, understanding that uh, black people are inferior that and and that differences are deficiencies rather than differences are should be part of the delight of god's creation yeah. um, and to try to teach in ways where non-whiteness is centered is the it's the call at this moment for our teaching but it is certainly moves against our societal norms, but toward the kingdom of God. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that it takes us back to, um, you know, where the New Testament church was in being a prophetic, radical voice in the midst of those tensions. It is not an easy place to do. People are losing their lives and people lost their lives in the early years of the church and have across all of the centuries for, for believing what they believe. But I think we have to make, be willing to take some risks and make some sacrifices in order to cultivate this kind of community where learning can happen and people can be either supported while they're already 
taking a stand or where black students can feel supported, encouraged um, as they're doing this wearying and exhausting work and where we challenge people who want to be resistant to that to think about what that where that where's that coming from how what are the theological implications of resistance to doing that work what does that say about our image of god or how we understand redemption or healing or reconciliation i'm always interested in um public policy in terms mm -hmm. of issues of race politics and racism because I always said, let God care about people's hearts. I want their behaviors to, right. <laughs> to follow suit yes. and, and toward justice and liberation. Um, your conversation about discernment also makes me think of um, discernment as a tool in the classroom in the moment. Yes. Like if we move people toward these tensions that we're talking about, if we move people toward these uncomfortable conversations that we're talking about, if we acknowledge the larger tapestry of the society that is in rebellion mode, searching for the better, searching for change that is transformative toward the better, toward a less death dealing time. We not only need discernment about the classroom, but we have to be discerning people in the moment of teaching too, it seems to me. I think you're right about that. And to part of the discernment is sort of, um, I, of course you have to be aware of what's happening in the classroom and do that um, sometimes difficult uh, shifting of you know what we were going to say or do, how we were going to move through this topic or issue. And I think for me at least, that means I have to do some discernment within myself. So what is this raising up in me? Um, is it frustration or anger or fear or what that it raises up in me that the, that that I'm being called upon to do this thing in the moment. I mean, not all of us were trained in PhD programs to do that kind of theological thing. Most, most of us were not. So I think this is a new a new day, and we need to, to get some training if we mm -hmm. haven't had it, but also to be very clear about what it what it's stirring up in me. Mm -hmm. It take I think it takes a lot of um, I think it takes courage to teach, and. I am very thankful for courageous colleagues who model that for me every day because um, I'm not sure I'm a very brave person in general. Uh, but I think this calls for us sometimes to embody parts of our humanity that are less comfortable to us. We tend to be a people, um, and I say we as in religious leadership in this moment, uh, who don't, we don't like discomfort. Right. I think we're that, I'm going to call us spoiled, and I'm going to yeah. say us. Yeah. We don't like discomfort. And almost everything, all the wisdom that you have brought us to in this conversation points to us being uncomfortable yes. in these ongoing ways. Dr. Crenshaw, but why are you trying to make us uncomfortable? Well, I think that my uh, black colleagues and students have been uncomfortable for long enough. No, oh, Jesus. So, you know... <laughs> My discomfort is a small matter, and uh, people of faith have the possibility and opportunity to, to turn to the gospel, to turn to the spirit, to do some spiritual work, uh, so that our discomfort becomes something that is actually prophetic and uh, becomes a radical move, uh, a radical uh, kind of urging us forward into the work of justice making. So um, I don't like discomfort either. And I'm going to be honest that I've got a long way to go to, to live into these aspirations that I have. And so I guess the other part of that is, is confession and lament for where I haven't done it, where I haven't been that person that I um, want to be and that our world needs me to be as a, a part of the body of Christ. And um, so... So confession and lament. And, and by lament, I mean something radical. You know, we want to get at the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is that too many white people haven't done their part to, to own their privilege and then figure out a way to press against that publicly. And um, radical lament means that I get uncomfortable about that, I confess that, and then I do something about it. And not just write a statement about it. I'm tired of people writing statements. Stop writing statements, people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Stop writing. 
and do something about it. Right. Well, I mean, there's you know, there's such a thing as content overload that doesn't lead to any kind of change. And I worry too that what will happen now is that um, you know the dust will kind of settle a little bit, and uh, those of us who are white and have that privilege will step back to that privilege and be kind of relieved that the crisis is over. And I just think that's naive and wrong because the crisis isn't over and it was never over for people who um, face uh, life-threatening life realities every single day and have for a very long time. So we can't, ju- we can't stop. This can't be the time that we don't follow through on what what we say we're going to do. So are you hopeful? And if you are hopeful, what do you hope? Um, I've been discouraged. And I feel uh, helpless in some ways about what to do. But I am hopeful. And I think part of the reason is that I've been... Um, uh, I have a community of uh, colleagues who I know are working hard to resist racism, white supremacy, and all the other kinds of things that uh, keep people on the margins and keep people's lives at risk. So I know that's happening. So I feel like I'm not doing this by myself. This is not There will be some heroes in this, but this is not about heroism. This is about changing our community. So every single person needs to change. And I'm glad, so I'm hopeful that there's, that I know there are other people in this work. And what I hope for is that we don't let this go until we see tangible changes. I don't know exactly what those are, and I don't know how they're going to come about because the the political realities and the depth of and the deep rootedness of this problem is significant. So I don't want to be naive. This I hope I don't have naive hope. So the Magi knew what they knew, but they, they also did. knew they didn't know. Yes. But they knew enough to go. So what I hear you calling us to and in, in putting placing us in the story as the Magi is to take what you know and go. Yeah, they had no GPS. <laughs> they had their, their camels. Yeah, I'm not sure you can always trust the GPS anyway. You might end up in the um, river, right? Listen, many times I've, I've been lost with my GPS telling me to turn. Yeah, so I think um, for, you know, they, but they did have an encounter that caused them to be open. I mean, they didn't get enlightened just kind of because they, they may have been on the way to enlightenment all along and they were studied and they had done that work, but then it was that moment of, of seeing you know, God with us. And I think it was that encounter that opened their hearts and minds to this change. Dean Cranshaw, I thank you so much for this conversation. I thank you so much for the work that you continue to do, um, particularly in this volatile moment. Well, I will uh, say that I'm grateful for the conversation, too, and I hope we will all hold each other in prayer that we can stay strong together and, um, and keep doing the work, keep looking for another way. And we're out. How was that, Paul?
the work that we share in the world as we perform the gospel in our everyday lives. And that's important, I think, for us to think about as we're trying to discern another way. I think your connection with this moment now to remind us that we are still a part of the Christian story, as well as link us to the story of the Magi or the magicians, the spiritualists in Jesus's time, those who had spiritual know-how, those who were known to be able to hear voices inside of themselves. I mean, you made the connection to um, hearing the voice inside of yourself as discernment. Well, that's what magicians do, shaman do, spiritualists do, mm -hmm. people who are into deep prayer and meditation who understand that there's more than one reality simultaneously. So to connect us to that wisdom tradition, both ancient as well as current, I think is right on target for the um, recognizing the depth of the problem right now in this upheaval and rebellion, as well as the kind of resources, both in the book that you mentioned, as well as the resources we have as Christian people and our own spiritual traditions. Yeah, I kind of, um, you know, my other favorite uh, wisdom character is uh, Woman Wisdom in Proverbs, and I, she calls out in the streets. She sits at the city gates. She's a public figure, but then she also has a house. And I just, I think we are people who, um, who've maybe been in the house too long, <laughs> or we've just stood in the doorway, and now we need to get out in, in the streets. I mean, if we want to do our part to eradicate racism and in poverty and provide adequate housing and health care, for, for everybody, then we need this other way, and we need to do our part both inside and outside. Um, I think part of my identity and is to do that public work and that what we do in the classroom is public work. It's wisdom. Well, let's stop there because you started buffering again. But, no. but the, the, the inclusion of that new piece, uh, I thought that was Yes, really sorry. Good. No, no, that's great. No, but it's, you know, it is, it is COVID-19. It is the world of the Wi-Fi and the buffering and the, all the stuff. You're on a roll. What, woman wisdom, you were on a roll. Yeah, the, the, the woman stuff was excellent. That, 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 that will get into the podcast. The, uh, no matter what. Right, but there'll be this little, <laughs> I'll fix it. I think I can fix it, but there's... Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't know what the deal is, but well, no, it's the Wi-Fi. It's, it's just your buffer. It your Wi-Fi is buffering. You can't help it. It's just it's beyond your control. It's the Wi-Fi of your computer. Well, so thank you, Jill. Let me, while you're on the line, uh, uh -huh. let me talk to you about something else. Since okay. um, you just told us that you were part of the LBGTQAI community, so I am. You know, I've been on my job for about two weeks, right? Um, and then COVID hit. And now I've been at home for another two weeks doing this. So one of the Wabash has traditionally um, and rightfully so created um, groups of identity particularity. Uh -huh. One of the groups, the particular in, in the identity politics, one of the groups that we have not uh, resourced as a group are LBGTQI colleagues. So uh -huh. I'm in the process of trying to figure uh -huh. out how to do that. Not that, not that it's a puzzle about how to do it, sure, but sure. it is about um, trying to do it in ways that are helpful and resourceful. Can I call on you to help me do that? Yes, absolutely. Yay, that's what I want. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm glad to be a resource in, in whatever way I can. Mm -hmm. I've been um, around theological education a long time now, so maybe some of that will pay off for somebody else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's, that's a group that has its, well, I don't need to tell you, never mind, I won't tell you, that, that has its own kind of politic that swirls it does. around it. Yeah. Um, that, is, that, is this, that is like racial politics or gender politics, but still different. Yes. Right, so I need to put together, Paul and I are putting together um, a project, and I want that to be one of the subsidiary, one of the benefitors yeah. of what we're putting Yeah, so I, where I have, um done some thinking about that is that, um, I mean, the wisdom work that I talk about has been really important to me for ever since I started in, in theological education. But the voice in that that is so often not heard is the strange woman. And the wisdom woman doesn't exist without her. 
Tell me who the strange woman is or tell me the strange woman. So it's the foreign woman or the strange woman, the one we're supposed to stay away from. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me, I, th- I feel like often um, because of sexuality and other things that, um, you know, we are, I am thought of as a strange woman um, or, but I think we actually both have strange and wise within us. And so that's been really important to me in, in, in that part of the kind of work that I um, find myself in. I have not been an outspoken person in that in that dimension of my world because the race work and gender work have been more front and center for me. But well, I, I'm 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 taken with you. We both have strange and wise in us. That doesn't mean we def, def, we befriended either or either of them. No, the one doesn't. Do. The one doesn't really exist without the other. Mm-hmm. I wonder what happens if they dialogue with each other. Hmm. Because a lot of assumptions in Proverbs, at least, are made about the wise woman by mm-hmm. the men who created her and also about the strange woman. In fact, they were created to be wise and strange so that they could create this tension between them. And that's how they... I, I used to, one of, we're going to, a colleague that I did a lot of collaboration with, it, Drew, I used to, and we did projects on hospitality. Mm-hmm. And we talk about the stranger, you know, in hospitality. Yeah. And I would always want to talk about the stranger as being strange. And he was in psychology and he would never let me move the stranger to the sh- being the strange one mm-hmm. because his thing was because they are unknown by some people does not make them strange right and to label them strange means to buy into what sure. their otherness yeah but i wasn't talking about that i was I talking what about you're what you're talking about yeah. <laughs> and i could never get him to understand that and i think if we collapse those too readily then we uh sort of like if we say the wise woman are actually one the same but we can't really do that either because um in her i've often wondered you know if we really stretch our imaginations about all that then the strange woman may be deemed wise by the people in her community probably so probably so so if but if we collapse those two then the one who's going to probably dominate is the wise woman woman. because in Mm -hmm. tradition she's been you know Mm -hmm. she's she ends up being the good wife right so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) where i think the strange woman the one that we're not supposed to Mm -hmm. has her own identity and we want to honor that in in a in whatever ways we can now you can't stretch it much past that i've discovered but still But the more we move into our, also our characters of the Magi and those magicians among us, those spiritualists, yeah. those, they become strange people. They do. Yeah. Right? The, some of the most powerful shaman that I know are strange yeah. <laughs> and wise, yeah. but seem, strange. Yeah. And, and it could be that part of our um, createdness uh, in the image of God has something to do with we all have that as a part of who we are, that's, mm-hmm. that strangeness, mm-hmm. but we're not comfortable with it, so mm-hmm. so we don't often tap into it as mm-hmm. a gift. In fact, mm-hmm. we try to sometimes rid ourselves of it. So, Woo. All right. That's, that's for another day. I know, right? So let's but keep talking. For, yeah. Because we're, percolate, we're percolating here with the Wabash Center. That was really good. With regard to the strange woman, I'd also like to include that section in the podcast. I thought that was excellent. There was one place that froze in there, too, but I think I'll figure it out how to make well, it. I, I, we didn't connect that to race, though. Well, uh, we can leave it out, too. But it, 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 there's, there's, not, there's a beauty in, uh, in the way that the conversation moved there. I don't know if we can come back out of it, but okay. uh, I'm, I'm going to leave all of that yeah. to you Paula because um, I haven't said anything that I um, didn't want to say, except for at the very end. I, I don't really want you to include where I said I've gone to preaching because I don't really. Okay. That was sort of an off the cuff effort at a little humor there. And yeah, I but, and, but see, in my tradition and in, in the African-American church tradition to say I've gone to preaching is to say, I'm in the spiritual flow. Yes. That's that's not a self-deprecating thing as much as it's a... I realize that, but I'm also not sure that that... um, I hear you. I hear you. I think people say that about me, but when I claim that for myself, it feels a little odd to me. Okay. Okay. I'll take that in. 
So if somebody else wants to say that about me, I'm yeah, okay. Yeah, but. All right. Okay. We'll so I will be it. in touch. We're, we're, we're um, in the middle of um, doing the planning now. Okay. Um, and I'm, I'm um, locating kind of feedback partners to say, okay, okay, this is what we're thinking about. What does this sound like? Rather than okay. trying to do this kind of stuff in a, in a, you know, by ourselves. All so right. Well, I'm glad to be a part of the conversation if it's helpful. Thank you. Um, so what's the what's the plan on the on this podcast? How how does that work? Uh, the uh, the podcast will be refined by me. I'll uh, get it ready to publish, and once it's ready to publish, it'll be published. Usually, the turnaround is pretty quick. This one's going to take a little bit more work. This will probably be Monday before I'll have this one. Yeah, ready. I'm sorry about the Wi-Fi thing. So no, that's okay. So it usually, it's usually turned around in, in 24 to 48 hours. This one will probably go up on Monday. When it goes up, you'll get an email from Carly Hollinsby, who's our producer, and she'll tell you when it goes live, when okay. it, the recording goes up on our website. Right. So please feel free to push it out, you know, to your constituency as well. So okay. we've gotten um, close to 3,000 downloads of our podcast. Right. Oh, wow. So we're confident that... Um, our immediate Wabash constituency is making use of it, but use of them, but also other constituencies that we haven't okay. mapped yet. So that's another reason why I wanted to get this kind of conversation about race and this kind of conversation about white allies talking to white folks who are struggling, because I don't think, I haven't heard this conversation in other places with any kind of, you right. know, with any kind of depth. So I'm like, we got to get on this. And so that's oh, what yeah. we're doing. It's a great idea. And again, I'm very um, honored to be a part of it. So Glad to have somebody to call, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you, Jill. You're Thank welcome. You. I hope you all have a good rest of the day. You too. Yep, you bye too. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.